Welcome, fellow plebs. My name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. All right, so today I want to open this podcast up with a little audio clip that features Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema. She's a Democrat, by the way, explaining how she makes decisions for her constituency over there in Arizona. I'm not going to spend more than a few minutes on this because it's so obviously wrong and bad that I can't even make it more clear than she does herself. Here it is. There's a bill that passed the House, the PRO Act. Uh, Give us a sense, as this bill makes its way to the Senate, where you uh, intend to be on this. We know it's an evolving issue. And if you'd be willing to have a a discussion with employers in Arizona about our concerns about this bill being a disruption to the workplace and to our business environment. Well, I would welcome such discussion. As folks who are listening today know, the way I make decisions on behalf of Arizona and for our constituents is by listening to the business leaders who will be impacted by these decisions. I can tell you that many Arizona businesses have already reached out to my office and I know have discussed the concerns that they have with the PRO Act with some of the folks who are on our call today. We are watching carefully because some of the PRO Act provisions, especially in regards to the worker classification test for independent contractors, could become a part of other legislative ideas. So I would ask all the members who are joining us today to please stay involved with my office and help me by sharing information about how this would impact you and your company so that I can go back to Senate uh, leadership and folks on both sides of the aisle to discuss the concerns that Arizona businesses have. What she said there is that she decides on what to do by listening to the business interests, not her larger constituency of regular ass people. And that's because they are the ones who contribute to her political coffers. The Arizona business interests are the people who she is accountable to in her mind, not the vast army of voters who are not those same business owners. In fact, 99% of her constituency are, in her mind, merely employees, merely the poors, the poor people that she can forget about. Seriously, rewind it a bit and listen to that bullshit again. This is what corruption looks like in our system of government. Hey, listen, sometimes they just tell us. It's up to us whether we believe them or not when they do. My advice is to believe them. Okay. On to the larger subject. Today, I want to talk about free speech a little bit. Freedom of speech, actually. We currently have a very real, very pressing issue with free speech in this country, but I'm going to throw you folks out there in podcast land a curveball and catch you looking, I think. And I might shock some of my more online listeners here, But I'm not going to talk about social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, or any of the new places like Local or Mastodon or whatever else is out there. Well, actually, that's not totally true. Social media will come up, but mostly only as a reference point and perhaps as a foil for some of my larger arguments here. 
And I'm not skipping over these things because they don't matter or because I don't care about them. I actually do care about them. But there is such a massive glut of dimwit hucksters out there talking about this shit that the entire conversation has become a muddy quagmire. Plus, all of those people, the ones who rant and rave about some dipshit Canadian psychologist being told to shut up by 18-year-olds, they are paying attention to and ranting about the wrong things, or at the very least, paying way too much attention to that one particular thing and ignoring far more important situations relating to free speech. You know, like capital F, capital S free speech. Like fighting the government with cans of soup type free speech. Not at mentioning Jack on Twitter and acting like you're a hero for it. So listen, I get it. I get that these dorks crying about getting banned for saying the N-word on Twitter or whining about YouTube not letting them use their service to tell some group of marginalized people to go and kill themselves. I understand that they aren't talking about free speech like the First Amendment free speech. I get it. They've told me so many times, and I will very likely do an episode on this subject at some point, but not today. But if these jackals actually cared about suppressed speech... They would talk about actual First Amendment free speech. They'd talk about it at least a little bit, right? The dirty secret here is that they don't actually care about free speech. They just care about their speech. And they care about getting on the Joe Rogan experience so they can make more money on their own podcast and YouTube channels and Twitter accounts. The term grifter has been overused a lot recently. But, yeah, I mean, that's it grifters. That's what it's about 90% of the time, maybe more. And if you're waiting for a big speech about cancel culture and all that entails, this isn't that episode either. Sorry. Maybe sometime in the future, though. Meanwhile, over in Constitutionland Hospital, the First Amendment is in hospice care. The First Amendment says this. It says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. End quote. And we are going to focus primarily, if not entirely, on the free speech and right to peaceably assemble aspects today. So the first thing I want to do is deal a little bit with the language of the amendment as it pertains to these two things and the interpretation of it. Not too deep, though. After all, I'm not a constitutional scholar or anything, but I do want to hit on it a little bit here. And listen, I know most of us probably know the following few things or at least broadly understand it, but bear with me here. I think it's important to mention it. The amendment says that Congress shall make no law. And some people view this as meaning that it applies only to our federal Congress. But the Supreme Court has consistently ruled that speakers, meaning citizens like you and I, are protected from all government agencies and the officials which represent them, whether federal, state, or local, as well as from the legislative, judicial, and executive branches of the government. So we're good there. The First Amendment does not, however, 
offer protection from private individuals or private organizations, a list which can include employers, private colleges, or even private landowners. The First Amendment applies only to the government. That's it. That's all it protects us from, from the government, all levels of the government. So why am I recording this? After all, this is America, land of the free, right? Republicans have been telling us for five years or so, ever since fuckwad came down that escalator, that free speech was under attack, right? After all, Twitter, they won't let you use racial slurs. And Facebook removed group pages planning violence. Free speech is under attack. Oh my God. But then those same Republicans, and yes, this is primarily a conservative and a Republican thing, they began passing laws. Yes, actual laws that are enforced by, yeah, you guessed it, the government. What sorts of laws did they pass? Well, let's take a look at a very recent one first that was just passed in Florida. It was passed on, let me check here one second, April 19th of this year. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, yep, another Republican, signed the bill into law with great fanfare. What does this law do? How does it impede free speech? I'm glad you asked. DeSantis and the rest of the Florida dullards who drafted and passed this thing framed the bill as an anti-riot and anti-public disorder bill. And that last phrase should trouble you when you hear it. Anti-public disorder. That means that the government wants to make it illegal for you to protest or to say things which make them look bad or to demand that they change anything. The goal of legislation like this is to criminalize speech, either directly or indirectly. And that's it. That's the complete and total goal of a bill like this, to shut us up. Any other framing of this bill, or any argument in its favor using words like safety or riot or whatever, it's just all bullshit. It just is. It's lies. The Florida bill grants civil legal immunity to individuals who crash their cars into crowds of protesters on city streets. The same state that gave us the absurdly broad and idiotic stand your ground laws just took a further step towards legalizing murder with this one. Stand Your Ground is responsible for that shitbag who walked free after murdering Trayvon Martin, as an example. The same thing will happen with this law. Some loser chud will drive his pickup truck into a crowd of protesters and kill people and get off. This is absolutely fucking absurd. Legal immunity for taking any action which results in you murdering another person should be so obviously immoral and unjust on its face that it is entirely indefensible. It also makes blocking a highway, which is as legitimate a form of protest as any other, a felony. And that aspect there is an infringement on our rights which criminalizes peaceable assembly. And that infringement should obviously be illegal. The Florida bill also makes the destruction of historical monuments and, get this, flags a felony. The Supreme Court says that burning a flag is protected speech. Florida just made it a felony. Now, these next two bits of this bill are interesting in a couple of ways. The hint here is to listen to the particular wording. 
The first is that anyone arrested during a riot is prevented from posting bail until after their first day in court. The second is that it raises the sentencing of battery on a police officer to six months in prison if it happens during a riot. And the wording here that I wanted you to notice, and which I hopefully emphasized, was the use of the term riot. It's important. It's important because we need to understand exactly who it is that declares that an event is indeed a riot. It's the police and mayors and the governor. In other words, it's the government. With a simple declaration, the government can declare absolutely any protest illegal. All they have to do is say, this is now a riot, and it becomes one from a legal standpoint. This should trouble you. Oh, and the bill also prevents cities and towns from defunding the police. So screw you for not wanting to fund your local terror squad and shift funds to actually help your neighborhood. You can't do that anymore. This bill is just a roundabout way for the government to both curb and criminalize speech and assembly. All of it framed as some sort of anti-riot, whatever the fuck that means, in pro-cop legislation. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess it is pro-cop in certain ways, but that's kind of one of the problems with it. Pro-cop and anti-citizen because it allows the cops to prevent you from speaking. And Florida is far from the only place that this is happening. Oklahoma and Iowa have recently filed similar immunity bills for people who crash their cars into human bodies and injure, maim, or even murder them. States like Indiana and Minnesota have taken a different track in their campaign to silence American citizens. Indiana is trying to keep anyone convicted of unlawful assembly charges, formerly known as protesting, from working in any local or state governmental jobs. In Minnesota, a bill in the state Senate there would, if passed, prevent anyone convicted of what is called unlawful protest, again, that's a euphemism for regular protesting, from receiving student loans or any other state-level financial aid, including unemployment. And actually, you know what? I'm going to read you the entire list of what Minnesota will punish you with if you protest and they don't like it. Hang on, just give me one second to find it in my notes. Okay, so this is the entire law. Quote, a person convicted of a criminal offense related to the person's illegal conduct at a protest, demonstration, rally, civil unrest, or march is ineligible for any type of state loan, grant, or assistance, including but not limited to college student loans and grants, rent and mortgage assistance, supplemental nutrition assistance, unemployment benefits and other employment assistance, Minnesota supplemental aid programs, business grants, medical assistance, general assistance, and energy assistance, end quote. So, if you protest and some chief of police declares that protest as unlawful, you're screwed, bucko. Minnesota wants to prevent you from getting SNAP benefits that feed your children. They will prevent you from getting medical assistance, for God's sakes. They'll take away unemployment benefits, and then these scumbags will take away employment assistance as well. They won't give you money to get by until you get a job, but they also won't help you get a job. This is how inhumane we've become in this country. 
It is nothing less than a sickness at this point, a malignancy that's creeping through the organs of this country and rotting it inside out. So I decided to look at the proposed Indiana law, the one I mentioned before Minnesota got me sidetracked. And this is the line that jumped out. And the rest of the bill reads much like Minnesota's does, but this was a difference worth mentioning. In the bill, it says this, quote, allows for the civil forfeiture of property that is used by a person to finance a crime committed by a person who is a member of an unlawful assembly, end quote. Yep. If you protest and a cop decides that you broke a law, and remember, they can do this just by simply declaring a protest a riot, by the way, let alone by using such dubious charges as disorderly conduct and whatnot. But if you've quote-unquote broken a law, the government can just take your shit. They can just take it from you. Bye. Good luck getting that stuff back. It ain't gonna happen. Civil forfeiture itself is, one, fucking wrong, and two, a subject for another episode. So stick around and subscribe. Okay, so meanwhile, in Kentucky. That state is trying to make it illegal to yell at cops. Yes, that is real. Kentucky wants to make it a crime to tell a cop that they're a motherfucker or a coward or a class traitor or a racist, or that they have a tiny penis or that they're stupid. They've even gone so far as to make showing a police officer your middle finger a crime. The bill says that a person who, quote, accosts, insults, taunts, or challenges a law enforcement officer with offensive or derisive words or by gestures or other physical contact that would have a direct tendency to provoke a violent response, end quote. Taunting is now a crime. Insulting someone is now a crime. And the government, the state, will arrest you for it. And then, after you've been arrested and held against your will and kidnapped, they will further punish you if you're poor and rely on public assistance to survive. The Kentucky bill is sponsored and pushed by Kentucky State Senator Danny Carroll. Unsurprisingly, he's a Republican and a retired police officer. This is what Mr. Carroll said about his bill as he defended it. What this deals with are those who cross the line and commit criminal acts. If you see the riots, you see people getting in these officers' faces, yelling in their ears, doing anything that they can to provoke a violent response. But this is not accurate. Carroll says that the bill deals with people who, quote, cross the line and commit criminal acts, end quote, which is bullshit. Because calling a police officer a douche isn't a crime right now. This bill doesn't address those who break a law. It introduces more laws to criminalize previously legal speech. We see the significant difference in these two things, right? The difference between what Carol is saying and what this bill is actually doing? I hope so. Every one of these bills is an attempt to criminalize speech and assembly. And these are far from the only ones. A total of at least 34 states have introduced some form of law into their legislature that run neck and neck with the ones I have mentioned so far in their fervor to shut us up. Now, I want to address something about the constitutionality of these bills. I'm sure at least some of you have thought, well, 
These laws will be struck down either on their way through the judicial system, much like a Texas law I will talk about in a few minutes, or even struck down by the Supreme Court itself. And that's most likely very true. But laws like this are meant to be challenged and even to be defeated. Those who drafted these bills will watch them lose in the court system. They will read the decisions and craft more bills with slightly altered language. The end goal here is to craft a bill that curbs free speech in just such a subtle way that the Supreme Court will allow it to stand. Then they'll write another law that takes that past law a few steps further. They'll wait for the loss, they will read that decision, and fiddle with the language until it passes, and so on ad infinitum. We are seeing this play out with anti-abortion laws right now. The Supreme Court said abortion can exist, so the states don't directly attack that. Instead, they pass laws that require clinics which perform abortions to be, like, Within 500 feet of a hospital, the doctor performing the abortion must have admitting privileges to that hospital. There must be an ambulance on site at all times. The floors must be plated in gold, and so on. They don't try to ban abortions directly. They just try to make it impossible for any clinic which performs abortion from existing. This is how these things work. They chew around the edges. We have another issue as well, and that issue is BDS. Or, actually, I guess the problem isn't BDS itself, but rather the anti-BDS laws that are being proposed and enacted. So we might want to talk here about exactly what BDS and anti-BDS are, like what they actually mean. BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. And the BDS movement is aimed at, according to its proponents, forcing Israel to follow international laws. Some of the goals that the BDS movement wants is for Israel to withdraw from occupied territories, integration of the West Bank and Gaza by removing the fencing and other barriers, and full equality for Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel. There are a few other things as well, but those are the basics. Those who engage with the BDS movement boycott working with Israel and Israeli companies, they divest from those same companies, and advocate sanctions against Israel. Now, I don't really care how anyone feels about this particular movement for the sake of this episode. And, you know, I mean, I do care about this stuff, but it's not overly important for this episode. So I'm not going to make any grand arguments here. I just wanted everyone to understand the basics before we move on. Okay. So we know what BDS is. So what is anti-BDS? Well, I guess it's obvious on its face, right? It's people who are against the BDS movement. Critics of BDS say that it's anti-Semitic, it aims to destroy Israel as a state, and it's little more than an extension of generations-old historical discrimination against Jews. And again, I don't want to litigate BDS and anti-BDS here in this episode, because the episode is just not about that, but the anti-BDS movement has very real and very clear impacts on free speech in this country, And that aspect is what we are talking about today. All right, so now that that little educational aside is completed, let's talk about anti-BDS laws. Because these laws are really why we're here and why I'm even talking about BDS at all today. Anti-BDS laws are nothing less than suppression of free speech by the government. 
This is absolutely clear. At least 26 states have passed anti-BDS legislation since 2005. These laws require individuals, both as private citizens and as representatives of their companies, to sign pledges that they will not participate in or even support through their speech any aspect of the BDS movement if they wish to do business with any state-level governmental agencies or divisions. Essentially, if a person advocates or participates in the BDS movement, they lose their contract or they cannot get a contract with the government. Even at the company and corporate level, this is obviously an attempt to curb speech by the government, an obvious violation of the First Amendment. But it's even more problematic for independent contractors and sole proprietors, people who literally can't separate personal acts from company acts. Or maybe a better way to say that is that they literally can't separate themselves from their company. We saw an example of this in Texas when a woman named Bahia Amawi sued over the then-Texas anti-BDS law and eventually won her case. The case is known as Amawi versus Pflugerville Independent School District, if you'd like to look it up. And it involved three other co-plaintiffs. Amawi was unable to continue her yearly contracts with the Pflugerville School District because she supported the BDS movement. So she sued, and the Supreme Court ruled in her and her co-defendant's favor and overturned the law. The court upheld, as it has since forever, that boycotts are fundamental aspects of free speech and that the government absolutely cannot infringe upon that. The question of how these same governments are allowed to physically assault protesters who are doing nothing but exercising their free speech rights might spring to mind. But that's another episode, I guess. But yet, these laws remain in far too many states. Too many being more than zero, right? Because free speech and freedom to assemble, right? Where are all of my Second Amendment goons at? Why do you remain silent on this one? I thought you were all about the Constitution. These laws even affect those who work for public colleges and universities, or even plan to hold events there for one day, as Abby Martin, one of my favorite reporters, found out in February of last year when she was required to sign an oath pledge that she would not participate in or support any BDS activities. Now, Abby Martin is an outspoken critic of the Israeli occupation and the treatment of Palestinians in general but particularly in the West Bank and Gaza, and she felt like she couldn't compromise on her principles and refuse to sign the pledge, which led to the canceling of a much larger event. So she is suing the state of Georgia, and that lawsuit is making its way through the court system as I speak. At a press conference, Martin said this, quote, I will not forfeit my constitutional rights by signing this pledge. End quote. And here's the direct and very short line that connects anti-BDS laws to free speech in case anyone missed it. Georgia, a.k.a. the government, required Martin to sign an oath to not speak her mind or exercise her free speech. Martin refused, and the state, through the university, prevented her from speaking. The state literally prevented a citizen from speaking. That's it. That's the whole point. 
Now back to the social media free speech Avengers here. If students tell some loser political pundit with a penchant for racial diatribes to shut up, you'll see endless tweet threads and YouTube documentaries about it. If some beanie-wearing idiot says something gross and gets shouted at by random Twitter users, you'll see much the same. If a private company decides to disassociate itself from someone spouting white nationalist rhetoric, you'll see the same free speech marauders line up to say something insipid about it. And by the way, I want to reiterate here again. Did I mention this before? I think I did. Anyway, I want to say that I'm not discounting social media stuff completely. It's absolutely something that we need to talk about and debate and figure out. But what we have going on right now, all across the country in various states, and even protracted attempts at the federal level, are very real, very clear, and very pernicious attempts by the government, the actual government, not social media companies, to limit our free speech. And yet, these same self-proclaimed free speech warriors don't have shit to say because it was never about free speech or our speech more broadly. It was always about their speech. It was, more importantly than that broad view of this stuff, more about the consequences of their speech and them being free from those consequences more than anything else here. So here's the thing about social media screaming. These social media companies are immensely powerful. This is absolutely true. And there is a very real blurring of the lines between government and private corporate power. This is also true. That line is often blurry. But while there does remain a discernible distinction between the two, I am far more terrified about the people with guns who can declare my words illegal and who have the power to kidnap me and hold me against my will than I am about getting shadow banned on Twitter. Always more important than dealing with these IDW dorks is dealing with the government and its consistent and seemingly unstoppable bend towards using the immense weight and power of the government, of the state, to make protest illegal or at least to coordinate off far away in a dark corner so nobody sees or hears it. To infringe on our free speech and freedom to assemble. The current plot of this dystopian America is for the government to silence American voices rather than do anything at all to deal with the underlying causes that give rise to protest and citizens speaking out in the first place. Criminalizing your words and actions is cheaper in the long run than fixing the problems that made you want to scream at the state. Free speech is indeed under attack in this country. But the most ominous and powerful threat isn't YouTube as a company or Fuckstick21 telling you to shut up on Twitter. The imminent threat is the cops assaulting protesters, mayors declaring protest riots, the state ruining lives and livelihoods with anti-protest laws, and the state actually sanctioning the vehicular murder of our fellow citizens. The threat is the state forcing activists to sign loyalty oaths that prevent them from speaking freely. Speaking freely as a phrase just hit me. That what I just said, speaking freely, is just the same as free speech, right? To speak freely is to have free speech. This is the real threat. If your favorite 
free speech Twitter account or YouTube celeb isn't talking about this aspect even more strongly than they rant about Facebook, then you're listening to the wrong people. You're listening to the disingenuous grifters. The state is forcing us to sign loyalty oaths, and they are forcing us to shut up under threat of a riot baton and tear gas at the very least, and right up to handcuffs, kidnapping, and imprisonment. But also, when it really comes down to it, at the end of a gun barrel. I mean, really, fuck Twitter. Focus on the assholes with the authority, the pens to sign laws, the badges in the guns, and the ability and the almost psychopathic drive to criminalize your speech. That is the enemy that we need to fear and fight first. Everything else is second order. And that's the episode, guys. I want to thank all of you for listening once again. Uh, if you have a few moments, there's a link to Apple Podcasts in the, uh, in the show notes. If you could click that and leave us a rating and or a review, that would be awesome. It's the best way to help out a, you know, a small podcast like mine. And uh, don't be afraid to share it either. Share it on you know Facebook, Twitter, wherever you go. Thank you, guys. I love you all.